This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. In October 1994, a serial burglar prowled southwest Bakersfield. He targeted the neighborhoods of Laurel Glen, the Oaks, and Hagen Oaks. This thief, often in broad daylight, entered unlocked windows and back doors. Multiple households in the area fell victim to this criminal. On October 27, 1994, the adult daughter of a Hagen Oaks resident was house-sitting for her parents. Her folks were out of town visiting their beach house on the coast. This young lady is named Brandy. Brandy had been away from her parents' house for a short time. When she returned home and walked in, she noticed right away something wasn't right. A door that was typically locked was open. Items were strewn about. Nobody else was supposed to have access to the house. So she called her parents to make sure they were still at their beach house and to tell them what she discovered at their Hagen Oaks home. While she was on the phone to her parents, she heard a click on the phone line, a click that sounded as if a phone in another room of the house was picked up. Brandy ran out ran to a neighbor's house and called the police. Her parents drove back from the coast. They determined several household items, along with a handgun, were missing from their Hagen Oaks home. As traumatizing as this incident may have been for Brandy, she was lucky. The victim of the next home burglarized wasn't. This is Murder in the Oaks. In southwest Bakersfield sits a desirable neighborhood named the Oaks. It's an upscale neighborhood where homeowners take pride in their yards. Landscaping is always meticulously maintained. Westwell Drive, the street that takes traffic from Gosford Road, cuts right through the neighborhood. Krista McAuliffe Elementary School is in this neighborhood and is located right on Westwell Drive. Every morning before school starts, the area is bustling with activity. Cars, school buses, and pedestrians clog Westwold. But once the school bell rings at 8.15 a.m., the commotion in the neighborhood settles down. Traffic lightens and a calm is once again restored to the Oaks. Until the afternoon when school lets out. Thursday morning, October 27th, 1994, was typical for the Oaks. With Halloween just a few days away, many of the yards and front doors were decorated for the approaching occasion. On a cul-de-sac, just off West Wool Drive, lived the Breck family. Their house was only a few blocks from Krista McAuliffe Elementary School. As a matter of fact, 
you're able to see the school from the Breck's front yard. On this particular Thursday morning, Mary Breck was home alone. Her husband Stephen was at work and their two teenage kids were at school. Mary was busy getting ready to start her day. She and her husband owned Books Etc., an independent bookstore in Rosedale. While Mary was in the master bedroom, a burglar stealthily entered the Brecks' home. He entered through an unlocked back door. Inside the house, the intruder spied a purse lying on the kitchen counter. He began rummaging through the purse, looking for valuables to steal. As he was doing this, he was startled to hear the sound of a blow dryer coming from another area of the home. He grabbed a wallet that was inside the purse and hurriedly exited the Breck home the same way he entered. When Mary was finished getting ready for the day, she grabbed her purse, got in her dark green Lexus SUV in the garage, and drove to the bookstore on Rosedale Highway, oblivious that her wallet had been stolen. It wasn't until later in the day, while she was still working at the bookstore, that Mary discovered her wallet missing. This really puzzled her. She couldn't think of anywhere she could have accidentally left it. She searched the bookstore, thinking she might have left it there at the shop the day before. When she didn't find it at the bookstore, she figured it had to be at home. She thought it was probably sitting on the kitchen counter, and she didn't see it when she picked up her purse to leave earlier that morning. When she got home that evening, she went directly to the kitchen counter to see if her wallet was there. It wasn't. The entire Breck family scoured the house looking for Mary's lost wallet. That night, she tried to recall every moment from the last time she remembered having the wallet to when she discovered it was gone. Mary went to bed still pondering where she could have lost her wallet. The next day, Friday, October 28, 1994, for Mary Breck was very similar to the previous day. She was home alone in her house getting ready. Her husband was at work and her kids were at school. Around 8.30 a.m., someone was at her front door ringing the doorbell and knocking. Still wearing her green nightgown, Mary went to the door. Without opening it, in a raised voice, she asked what the person wanted. A male voice on the other side said he found some credit cards that belonged to her. Mary was suspicious and refused to open the door. But the man on the other side persisted. Cautiously, Mary slowly opened the door, just a crack. Standing on her doorstep was a young man. He looked to be no older than 20. He told Mary he found her credit cards in a trash can at a nearby park. Mary told the young man to hold on, close the door, 
and she slipped a sweater on over her nightgown. When she opened the door again, the young man handed Mary the credit cards. She went through them, looking for her driver's license. It wasn't there. She told the young man that she'd appreciate it if he could find her license. She told him to hold on again, and she closed the door. When she opened it, Mary extended her hand out to the young man with a $5 bill, a reward, a way of thanking him for returning her credit cards. The young man put the money in his pocket, turned around, and walked away from the house. Even though she was grateful to get her credit cards back, this encounter didn't sit well with Mary. She was suspicious of his story, so much so that she called an employee at the bookstore to tell them about it and expressed how uneasy this made her feel. About an hour later, the young man was back knocking on Mary Breck's door again. This time, when she answered, the young man forced his way in. He overpowered Mary and pushed her down as hard as he could. He made her crawl into the living room and tied her hands with a telephone cord. She pleaded with him not to hurt her. She said she'd do anything. The young man responded to Mary's pleas by tying a bandana around her mouth. The man pulled her into a bedroom. Using a knife he brought with him, he cut off Mary's clothes and raped her. After the sexual assault, he then blindfolded Mary and bound her ankles. Using a belt lying on a nearby chair, he strangled Mary into unconsciousness. With his victim subdued, he went through the Breck home looking for valuables to steal. Then he heard gurgling coming from the bedroom Mary was in. He went into the bedroom and strangled Mary until he was certain she was dead. Being in the house with the dead body made the killer uncomfortable. So he dragged the dead and battered body of Mary Breck out of the house and into the backyard. With the body out of his sight, the young man proceeded gathering items in the house to steal. He grabbed a portable television, a camcorder, and an ATM card. He found the keys to the Lexus and went to the garage. In the garage, he loaded some fishing poles and camping supplies into the SUV. He opened the garage door, backed out of the driveway, and made his getaway in Mary's vehicle. The first sign that something wasn't right in the Oaks neighborhood was when a neighbor noticed the Brex family's dogs running loose. That was about 10 a.m. When Mary didn't show up to open the bookstore, employees became concerned. This was uncharacteristic of her. They called her house but didn't get an answer. So they called Mary's sister-in-law, Susan. Susan drove to the house in the Oaks. When she didn't get a response from ringing the doorbell and knocking on the front door, Susan went to the backyard. And there is where Mary Breck's body was discovered 
by her sister-in-law. Parents picking up their kids from Krista McAuliffe Elementary School were shocked to see such a large presence of law enforcement in the typically quiet neighborhood. Residents on the cul-de-sac mingled with news media trying to get information about the crime. Some neighbors stood in their driveways watching as homicide detectives from Bakersfield Police Department scoured the Brecks' home. Crime scene tape stretched across the Brecks' front yard to keep onlookers at bay. Investigators learned that Mary's dark green 1994 Lexus SUV was missing. A stolen vehicle bulletin was broadcast over area law enforcement frequencies. About 5 p.m., while detectives were still processing the crime scene in the Oaks, 20 to 30 miles away, a California Highway Patrolman spotted Mary's stolen car. It was being driven by a young white male on Highway 178 through the Kern River Canyon. After following it a short distance, the officer confirmed the vehicle was stolen and possibly driven by a homicide suspect. The officer activated his emergency lights and siren as he tailed the Lexus traveling east through the canyon. While still in the canyon, the driver maintained safe speeds. But once he reached the four-lane highway near Bodfish, he sped up considerably. As the pursuit progressed towards Lake Isabella, more CHP and Kern County Sheriff vehicles joined. Sometimes speeds reached 115 miles per hour as they raced through the Kern River Valley communities. At one point in the pursuit, near Paradise Cove, the suspect rear-ended a CHP pickup. Mary Breck's stolen vehicle began spewing smoke. The erratic driving and high speeds put too much of a strain on the vehicle. Its engine finally gave out just east of the small town of Onyx. Officers took the lone occupant into custody at 5.30 p.m., about a half hour after the pursuit began. Inside Mary's vehicle was the handgun stolen during the Hagen Oaks burglary the day before. Also inside were fishing poles and a sleeping bag and other camping and household items stolen from the Breck home. CHP officers brought the suspect to Bakersfield to be questioned by Bakersfield police detectives regarding the homicide of Mary Breck. This young man's name was Bob Russell Williams Jr. He was 18 years old. During the first round of questioning, Williams claimed he didn't know anything about it. He must have blacked out and didn't remember details of anything. During the next interview with detectives, Williams readily and freely admitted to the crimes, eventually stating, quote, Yeah, I strangled that lady. I killed her, unquote. 
He recounted how he stole her wallet the day before and how he returned to her home in the Oaks the next morning. When asked about the other burglaries in the area, Williams denied any involvement. He said, quote, I might have killed that lady, but I'm no burglar, unquote. Detectives confronted Williams with evidence tying him to those other crimes, and he eventually confessed to those as well. Investigators asked why he took the fishing poles and camping equipment. Williams claimed he stole those items to live off the land while he was evading capture. Williams said that after he killed Mary Breck, he drove to a bank to try to use her ATM card. But since he didn't know the pin, he was unsuccessful. Next, he drove up to the Kern River Canyon to Live Oak Campground. There he fished, hoping it would help him relax. Three days after the crime, Williams gave an interview to a TV reporter. During this interview, he confessed to the killing of Mary Breck and expressed remorse, even apologizing to the Breck family. As expected, after a violent crime like this, neighbors in the Oaks were shaken. As far as anybody knew, this was the first time a murder had occurred in that neighborhood. Things like this just didn't happen there. In fact, crime was so rare in the Oaks that homeowners hadn't even formed a neighborhood watch program. Residents of the Oaks felt safe taking an evening or even late night walk. What happened to Mary Breck in her own home in broad daylight made them all apprehensive about their own family's security. Before this awful crime, no parent ever questioned their child's safety while walking alone the few blocks to Krista McAuliffe Elementary School. Not anymore. Not after what happened October 28, 1994. This tragedy also sent shockwaves throughout Bakersfield. It exposed the vulnerability of all neighborhoods, regardless of their economic demographics. If something like that could happen in the Oaks, an upscale neighborhood, it could happen in any neighborhood. Retailers in the Rosedale Shopping Center, where Mary Breck's bookstore was located, were stunned. One nearby business owner, still trying to process the sad news, said there was absolutely nothing negative about Mary Breck. He said she was sweet and kind. Mary Rose Breck was 40 years old at the time of her death. She was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but had been a resident of Kern County for 19 years. She'd been employed by Bank of America for 20 years, but left that job two years prior to open her own business, books, etc., in Rosedale. Mary was survived by her husband, Steve, her teenage son and daughter, her mother, and two brothers. On November 3, 1994, one week after her death, family, friends, co-workers, and former co-workers 
crowded into St. Philip's the Apostle Church to mourn Mary Breck. Nearly 400 people attended the funeral services. Mary was laid to rest at Greenlawn Cemetery in southwest Bakersfield. What was revealed about the accused murderer in the days after his arrest was unsettling. Bob Russell Williams Jr. was 18 years old. He lived with a 16-year-old girlfriend and her mother in an apartment on Gosford Road, just a few blocks from his victim's residence. The girlfriend was five months pregnant with his child. On the condition that her identity not be disclosed, Williams' girlfriend spoke to a reporter for the Bakersfield Californian. She expressed disbelief that her boyfriend could commit such a heinous crime. The couple met eight months prior. They both enjoyed country line dancing, and that's how they met. She said she had no knowledge of him hurting anyone in his past. He's not that kind of person, she claimed, saying he was easy to get along with. The expectant teen said she last saw Williams in the morning before Mary Breck's murder. The two planned to meet that same afternoon when she got out of school, but Williams never showed up. Other friends of Williams also claimed they had no foresight into this kind of criminal behavior from the accused killer. From the outset of this case, Kern County District Attorney Ed Jagels stated his office would seek the death penalty. The crime was just too brutal and violent for him not to. Despite his confessions to the detectives, at his arraignment, Williams entered not guilty pleas to the crimes related to Mary Breck's homicide. Williams' defense attorneys played musical chairs. Initially, Kyle Humphrey represented the defendant, but Humphrey left the case when a conflict of interest with a potential witness arose. These types of technical legal matters delayed for months Williams' criminal trial. Finally, 18 months after the murder of Mary Breck, Williams entered guilty pleas. He pleaded guilty to one count of murder and admitted to committing the murder in the course of a rape and burglary. He also pleaded guilty to five counts of burglary. In June of 1996, Williams went before a jury that would decide his punishment for the crimes he pleaded guilty to. Prosecutors with the Kern County District Attorney's Office were seeking the death penalty. The crimes Williams confessed to were so reprehensible, his defense had little to argue to help save their client from death. The only option his lawyers had was to try to drum up sympathy for the admitted killer. Williams' defense presented evidence that he was severely abused as a child abused physically, emotionally, and sexually by his stepmother. These allegations were well documented. William's stepmother was charged with felony child abuse. In 1983, she pled guilty to misdemeanor child neglect. 
This argument that being abused as a child turned Williams into an adult monster, this defense evidently didn't sway the jury. They sided with the prosecutors. They concluded whatever abuse Williams suffered as a child shouldn't influence how they ruled on his punishment for Mary Breck's killing. The jury sentenced Williams to death. Bob Russell Williams appealed his death penalty sentence to the California Supreme Court. His counsel argued juror misconduct. A juror who sat on the panel that sentenced the confessed murderer to death distributed flyers to fellow jurors. These flyers contained biblical passages. In 2006, the California High Court ruled that this juror's actions were not enough to throw out the death penalty. Today, Williams is still alive. As a condemned man, he is not eligible for parole. He's currently incarcerated at the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility. Resources used for this story, the Bakersfield Californian, caselaw.com, and findagrave.com. I'm Robert Peterson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, with another Notorious Bakersfield story. Have a good week.